Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although we'll hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. We are back with the new season of Club Book and will be hosting 10 exciting events from September to November 2017, all around the Twin Cities Metro, and we look forward to having you join us. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features P.J. Tracy at Carver County Library, Chanhassen. P.J. Tracy is a pseudonym of mother-daughter writing duo Patricia P.J. and Tracy Lambridge, authors behind the internationally best-selling Monkey Wrench Mystery Series. Set right here in the Twin Cities, the Monkey Wrench novels center around a group of computer geniuses who split their time between software engineering and a much less prosaic pastime, helping authorities solve Minnesota's seemingly unsolvable crimes. P.J. Tracy's debut, Monkey Wrench, in 2003, earned the Lambriches the prestigious Anthony and Barry Awards for Best First Mystery Novel, as well as the 2014 Minnesota Book Award for Popular Fiction. Subsequent installments, Live Bait in 2014, Dead Run in 2005, Snowblind in 2006, Shoot to Thrill in 2010, and Off the Grid in 2012, firmly established P.J. Tracy as a murder mystery mainstay. Their seventh, The Sixth Idea, was released in paperback in June. Nothing Stays Buried, Tracy Lambridge's newest monkey wrench thriller, and the first since the passing of her mother PJ in 2016, was released in August. Thanks everybody for coming out. Um, what a great crowd and it's like it's a summer night and I really appreciate that you're inside instead of outside enjoying summer. And it is summer, right? I mean, the, the past few days when it's been so nice, I've had this kind of ongoing fantasy that I actually slept through winter and it's July <laughs> and the fair is a month away yet. So. But I know that's not true. But but thank you very much. And I guess, um, first of all, I'd like to start out, of course, as you know, my beloved PJ uh, passed away on December 31st on the winter solstice, which seemed appropriate because it's the darkest day of the year. And she had a long struggle with heart failure. So she is certainly missed every single day and um, always will be. I do have to say, though, that um, life is occasionally really, really boring without her. I mean, I had no idea. <laughs> you know, she was such a, she was a human supernova, I always said, who burned so brightly. And, um, you know, it's, it's just, um, you know, it was 
amazing to me. I, you know, you can be prepared for any eventuality. And of course, with a chronic disease like heart failure, you know that you know, there's going to come a day when there's going to be no more tomorrows for you. And as prepared as you can be, you just really never know how you're going to react. And you know, PJ was not only my mother, but you know, she was my best friend, she was my soulmate, and my writing partner of almost 30 years. And so I really had no clue. I thought I, I'm going to disintegrate into this blubbering mass and be totally useless and fall apart. And, you know, as a very brief period of time passed and, you know, I got back into writing, I found myself writing faster and harder and better. And it suddenly seemed obvious to me. When I write, you know, PJ's with me. She's still in every single word I write. And when I do write, I hear her voice and her laughter and her wisecracks. And, and it just seems such a natural thing. So oddly, well, I guess it's not odd, but um, PJ Tracy, the voice of PJ Tracy, the entity, was something that we created very much together. And it was never the sum of separate parts. And so PJ Tracy is still alive and well. And PJ's here somewhere. She's up there drinking wine. And she's here tonight. We just know she is. <laughs> anyhow, so I'm, I'm just really um, thrilled. It's been a very strange year without PJ, of course. But she's been so present because, uh, well, last year we came out with the sixth idea. Uh, this year, um, nothing stays buried. And I'm in edits for the one that's coming out next year, too. And I will tell you later about a heartwarming, quirky Christmas story that we have coming out November 15th of this year. So a little bit different. No bodies, no blood, no guts, no nothing. <laughs> um, I guess um, I might as well start a little bit about how we started as authors, co-authors, and what our relationship was like. Because so many people wonder, it's like, you know, what's it like to write with your mom? You know, how did you start? But uh, I guess the best way probably to start would be to tell a little bit, a little story about PJ, which kind of is emblematic and really indicative of our relationship together always and our writing process together. And then everything else I say about our writing process and so forth will make a lot of sense to you. So uh, PJ and I, um, when we're working and we're focused and we're really into a book, you, there is no turning that off. And I think artists are very much like that. Whatever your medium, you know, whatever your craft, once you were in the zone, you don't get out of the zone and you cannot shut down. And it was at a point, I can't remember which book we were working on, but we were just, you know, being, we we're driving each other. We could not figure out actually we're trying to decide on a demise for a particular character and we could decide how we wanted to kill them. And we were frustrated and we realized we're totally burned out. Let's go do something fun, we'll get in the car. So what is fun for us when we've been working like 15 hours a day for 30, 300 days? Let's go grocery shopping. There's no food in either of our houses. So I thought, okay, this is great. We'll get in the car and we'll go grocery shopping. So we do, and it's a nice little local, small grocery store. We fill up our carts, and um, we're in a very long line in this small store, and we're just standing there, and of course our minds are churning, even though we promised we'd try and turn it off. And, and then suddenly, out of the blue, PJ just, I mean, she didn't scream, but it seemed so loud. She said, I know how we can kill him! I mean... <laughs> And so, you know, time froze for like a millisecond. 
And we kind of looked around and saw all these saucer eyes <laughs> staring at us, probably thinking, who are these two psychotic women? Get them out of Kowalski. And then we just absolutely burst into hysterical laughter. And we were just crying, literally crying. And everybody else started laughing afterwards. And I'm sure some were very traumatized and still have no idea what that incident was about. They probably tell it around, you know, cocktails or something. But anyhow, that, that is kind of pretty much the way that <clears throat> PJ and I has operated. And my, my poor father will be the first one to tell you when I went over to her house to work together, which was virtually every single day of the year, um, <clears throat> we would just sit in there. And all he's like, I can't believe you write such serious and dark stuff. All you do is go in that office and laugh. That's all you do is laugh. It's like, no, that's not true. <laughs> Excuse me. But <clears throat> You know, thinking back on the many times, we certainly do a lot of laughing. We do, I think we did uh, you know, our most thoughtful work on our own, you know, when we went back to respective homes at night and worked on what our assignments were. But that is kind of um, PJ and, and, and um, our relationship and how we wrote. And um, we, I'm an only child, and so, you know, we're very, very close. And people do ask, and I'm telling the truth when I say we, we never had a fight, ever in my whole life. And um, so I guess really what laid the foundation for our collaboration together um, started when I was a toddler. And I was about three years old. And it started at bedtime story hour. And it was our favorite hour of the day. But there just never seemed to be enough books for us to read. You know? And so when we'd finish the work of somebody else, you know, PJ had this great idea. Well, let's write our own story now. And so I thought, OK, this is terrific. Let's write our own story. So she would come up with one sentence. And then she'd say, Tracy, it's your turn. You come up with a second. And we'd go back and forth, depending on my age, sometimes once or twice, as I got older, a little more often. And then we would take these stories and, you know, probably mostly nonsense and about mice and a farmer or who knows whatever was in my mind at the time as a kid. And then we would use my stuffed animals, Lammy and Teddy, um, to act out the, the skits. So we did that every night. And although professionally we did not work together that way, not exactly, it was very similar because we did act out things even in our, in our later years. Um, and I am happy to report that Lammy and Teddy are still alive and well. They're, they're threadbare, and they are eyeless. And they have a place of prominence above our desks where PJ and I rode together at her home. And, and they're still sitting there. And every time I look at them, I just think of those little sessions. You know, and it just cracks me up. It was just um, really fun. So, you know, that really did actually um, propel quite a long and prolific writing career, believe it or not. Those, those um, you know, stuffed animal plays and, and all the antics and all the laughter we shared back then. So um, what happened was I decided, okay, yes, I'm going to go to college and get a really useless major. At the time, it was a Russian major and a music minor. Not worthless, absolutely fabulous. And then I decided that it was time that I travel the world. So at the time, PJ was doing short story work. And um, I was just wanting to go to Europe and also sing in a rock band, because that was also a very important part of my life at the time. And so she said, well, OK, you need money to you know, finance all these really annoying habits of traveling and singing in a rock band and making like $50 a gig. And she said, I, my workload's really, really heavy right now. So well, let's say we write. Now I, was, I had always written. I mean, even as a kid, once I progressed beyond stuffed animal theater and crayons, 
we had an old Olivetti manual typewriter in the den that I would write stories. So I always did write, and I thought this, and I loved writing, and I'd actually publish some poetry at that point. And so I thought, okay, why not? Let's do it. So we're writing romantic short stories together, and that was kind of how I cut my teeth in the family business. And I'm not going to say, boy, that was awkward, because what was more awkward was we started writing Harlequin romance together. <laughs> no, it wasn't awkward. It was just, it gets kind of weird where, and again, this is what you can see, PJ and I laughing, you know, you're starting to write this love scene, and then we're going, and we just, you know, burst out into laughter, because how can you not? I mean, it's kind of funny. But uh, so that's, that's actually how we started writing together professionally. Did short stories, um, quite a few short stories, and... Um, then the Harlequin romance novels. Now, PJ on her own had written about 14, and I wrote four with her. Then we went on to screenplays, and just kind of back and forth, and we came to this point when, you know, we'd always really loved the mystery genre. It was our favorite. You know, we were voracious readers of the genre, and we just couldn't, you know, there weren't enough books for us. We thought, you know what, let's just sit back. Let's take a year, just take one year off, no more romance, no more screenplays, and let's write something we would really love to read. And so we kind of broke down, well, you know, what do you love to read? Well, the one thing we wanted was a great cast of characters that you could get really in-depth with. And, um, you know, to us, great characters would be kind of quirky, eccentric people that you'd like to go to a party with or have a cocktail with. And that's kind of the genesis of the Monkey Wrench crew. You know, and for those of you who have read Monkey Wrench, they are very eccentric geniuses and um, odd ducks, but always people we thought, well, that would be so cool to meet. And then uh, the cops, um, Bengosi and Gino, um, also came. We really wanted to kind of get in depth and, and give them, we didn't want to have cookie cutter kind of crime novel characters. And with Mangosi and Gino, um, you know, we, we knew the, the detectives are always the cornerstone of every single crime novel or crime series. And we understood how important it was to find that really delicate balance between gravity and levity. Because in real life, if, you, um, if your occupation requires you to deal with human tragedy and sometimes depravity, you know, all the time, you know, it's a really complex personality. And in fiction, it's, um, it can be real touchy to kind of find that delicate balance without seeming insensitive. So, um, you know, knowing PJ and I, as, as you do from the stories I've told you, there's obviously a, um, humor in all of the books because it's almost like a safety valve. You, can't, you need that to release it and to take away the darkness. And in rea reality, the people who deal with that do possess that kind of humor. You, you need that. You have to shine light on something, even if it seems inappropriate from, <clears throat> excuse me, an outer perspective. So um, that was, you know, our primary goal with Monkey Wrench and with the de detectives. And um, we, of course, centered it here because this is what we knew. But um, the funny thing was, when, when we were conceptualizing Monkey Wrench, which was written as a standalone, by the way. It was never meant in our minds to be a series. And um, everybody was writing about New York, you know, gritty kind of crime novels back at that time in the late 90s. And so we thought, oh yeah, well, we'll have a book set in New York. And then we like started writing, we like wrote the first chapter and like, why are we writing about New York? We don't live there. We don't share culture. We don't share values, anything. So I tell everybody, write what you know because it's going to be authentic. And if it's not authentic, readers can tell. Even if you think you've pulled it off, you don't. So we came 
to Minnesota, obviously, to Minneapolis, and, and also Wisconsin, and the, the rural areas, because we know it, because it is so rich with opportunities. I mean, there's so many microcultures, and you have a great urban setting, and then you go out into anywhere. I mean, you picked one different corner of Minnesota, Wisconsin. Every county's kind of different. I mean, it may be settled, but it's just so much fun to write about. And I think it's also um, really in, enriching in, in a book to add, um, to show a different perspective because so many crime novels are just strictly urban. I'm mean, not so much anymore, but to see the perspective of, of people who live close to the land, um, you know, different values, just really basic values. They live with the land, uh, you know, hard work ethic. And that just seemed like a wonderful thing. So that kind of became a character as well in the books. We wanted it to become a character. And the other thing that's a character in any book about Minnesota, the weather is always a character. <laughs> And if you can't figure out what to write about in the book and you're on a chapter and you need some drama, hello, we've got drama. <laughs> for instance, nothing stays buried. I don't think I'm spoiling anything for those of you who haven't read it, but there, there is a tornado. So, and there's a snowstorm and the other, I mean, there's, I think we follow the seasons book for book. So, anyhow, um, but nothing stays buried. Um, is our first foray into writing about a serial killer, which we have always eschewed, never wanted to deal with getting into that sick, dark, twisted mind, very disturbing. And so we really wanted to find a way um, to write it and make it scary, and that's obviously dark, but n you know, none of the graphic violence, none of the things that always really turned us off and just were almost made us sick. I mean, you don't want to get too close to them. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I, I hope, I'm, I'm certainly hoping that we did a good job doing that, making it, it fearful and, but not getting too close to it. But um, actually, the serial killer didn't exist until last year in this book. And this is something, although it is the first book since PJ's passing, there's quite a lot of PJ in this book. Because way back, I believe it was in 2007, we were writing the seventh book, which ultimately became Shoot to Thrill not the seventh book, I'm sorry, the fifth book, which became Shoot to Thrill. And this Nothing Stays Buried was supposed to be it. So we began with a couple components, and it just never came together. It just did not work at all. And I think, you know, at the time, you know, we're going through some times of, of personal loss, and, you know, m you know, one of which was PJ had just been diagnosed with heart failure. So it was a really emotional time for us, and I guess it made us want to write about loss in certain ways and to kind of work through our own grief, but also to add a little bit of magic and um, just a little bit of hope in the book. So at, at some point, we just realized we can't, we can't do this right now. It's just we're a little bit too raw emotionally, so we're going to shove this, and then we ended up writing Shoot to Thrill, which is a very different book. And then... About two years ago, I pulled it out to revisit it, and, and we talked about it, and found all these great components. There's an old farmer named Walt who has a missing daughter in this book, and um, some of those things from way back when just seemed so magical. But there wasn't the, you know, the requisite crime behind it, and so I came up with a, a serial, serial, serial killer, because you need a killer, and that was the one thing we hadn't done yet, right? So we, we pulled that together, and... Um, 
I don't know. I'm very, I'm very proud of it. I'm very proud that there's so much of more in PJ in this book than there have been of the past few. And I'm, I'm just really thrilled that we could actually take it out and um, present it to everybody. And, you know, it's a really nice tribute to her as well. And I don't know, I, I love the book. And, and um, for those of you who wonder how writers get ideas for books, and, you know, I always wonder how writers get ideas for books and how we always did it and how I still do it. And it's kind of a mystery. It doesn't matter. There's inspiration everywhere and you literally have no idea where it's going to come from. I mean, I could see that bicycle and something will inspire me to write a first chapter. And so the inspiration for Nothing Stays Buried at its very base core is um, an actual news story about an escaped lion, African lion, from a cat rehabilitation center that was near PJ's old farm. And so that was kind of the magic in this book, or the not magic, depending on how you want to look at it. And um, yes, there is a lion in this book. And people got really excited about it. There's a lion in this book. So <laughs> look for the lion. Yeah. So that, um, that uh, is, is uh, nothing stays buried. And um, I have other exciting news on the monkey wrench front. I told you I'm in edits for the ninth Monkey Wrench book. There will be a 10th Monkey Wrench book that I will write this year when I finish the edits on September 30th. Pray for me, all right? But uh, probably the most exciting thing, I'm so happy about it, I'm so excited about it, and I hope you all have, have Kindles or e-readers because um, PJ and I have had a project that has been our baby for about, oh, I think it's about 20 years. And it was originally a screenplay, but we always wanted to novelize it. And it is the quirky, kind of dark PJ Tracy edge to a super heartwarming Christmas story called Return of the Magi. And I am so pleased and so thrilled that it will be available. It's available for pre-order now on Amazon. And um, it will be out November 15th. And the premise of this story is that there are two elderly, mentally ill sisters who fervently believe they are two of the three wise men. And with the very, very reluctant help of a career thief who is uh, performing community service in their healthcare facility outside of Las Vegas, they escape to cross the desert and look for the baby Jesus in the city of sin. So. <laughs> It is a great book, <laughs> and even if I do say myself, I love the book. And it's also really, really special because, you know, we had been wanting this to get published or at least see the light of day for so many years. And um, ironically, I, on the morning PJ died, I opened up my email and had gotten the good news that it was going to be published. So I went over to her home and I was able to tell her our baby was going to see the light of day finally on the day she, before she died. So it's a very special book and, and I hope you all enjoy it and I hope you'll check it out because it's, um, it's quite a bit different than PJ Tracy novels, but you'll probably hear us and see us in it anyhow. So. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Tracy Lambrich and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member curious as to where the name Officer Magotsky came from in the popular Monkey Wrench series. 
Well, actually, he used to, the one I'm, I'm referring to used to be my room, college roommate's boyfriend, and he was a cop, a Minneapolis cop, Jason. Yep. Jason? Do you know Jason? I looked him up. Oh, gosh. No, I named it after Jason because we hung out in college with him all the time. I mean, I knew forever and ever and ever, and he's, he had actually come to some signings earlier, but if you run into Officer McGoats, he was now a fire captain. Say hi. <laughs> So that is how you find names. This question comes from an audience member wondering if any of PJ Tracy's books will be adapted into films. Oh, let me tell you what a long odyssey and you always hope and pray, but you always have to think it's Hollywood. Um, they've been optioned several times. Magi has been optioned several times. Magi is still under option. And it's just sometimes things take 25 years to get done, sometimes they never get done. Sometimes they will. But honestly, I always thought, you know, when Monkey Wrench came out in 2003, the Hollywood Reporter called it the most adaptable novel of the year. And we thought, that's done. The Hollywood Reporter, I mean, that's a big deal. We thought for sure it was going to be a movie. We had execs coming to book signings when we were in LA doing signings and stuff. And Nothing happened, things get optioned, but I think, I mean, Nothing Stays Buried is the eighth book, and I mean, you've got all these great characters, and I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but I think they're great characters that are like ready-made. What a great, like even a TV series, I thought would be, you know, really great. Then you could follow the characters or have a movie, be a book or something. So to answer your question, always waiting. <laughs> always, always, but, but hopefully, I hope, I hope somebody will. And sometimes, I mean, now you're getting a whole new generation of different film, filmmakers. I mean, people that were like probably kids when Monkey Wrench came out, and now they're in. So, you know, it's our hope that maybe a new generation will rediscover it. And because there's so much computer stuff, I mean, the computer stuff in Monkey Wrench, although very current and cutting edge and probably didn't even exist then, is old news now, but you know, we always kind of amp up the technology in every book, so I don't know. Keep your fingers crossed, everybody. I'd love to go see the movie someday, or a movie, or watch the TV show. An audience member notes that Tracy Lambrich for a long time worked as a writing duo with her mother. Will Tracy look for another writing partner in the future? No, that's, a, that's a, a really good question. I know I could never have another partner. I mean, I had the gold standard for a partner. And I could, I, I could work with somebody, but I just, you know, have no desire to because she's so much in my head. It's like she's still there as a partner. What I really, really do, you know, of, of all the things I miss about her, it is hard not to have somebody who thinks like you or is as crazy as you or whatever you'd like to call it to bounce ideas back and forth, you know, that kind of interlocution and interplay and interchange, you know, is, is important, but, you know, I, I talk to her. And I'm, I know she, she talks to me too, so we do it. it. You know, that was certainly adjustment and we'll continue to get better. And, um, you know, the other thing too that I miss is like having another creative person in my life and especially one so close that I've actually, you know, I talk with her on the phone like five or 10 times a day and it's like, God, we are kind of different. <laughs> I don't, just to, I, you know, it's just the things you go through and stuff and we shared so much. So um, I will just forge on ahead and, and really, like I said, I'm just having, I'm still having a blast writing it. And I have some plans to possibly have been asked to do a spin-off of one of the characters, like an Iris Ricker character, or the Wisconsin police. And we'll just see what happens, but I'll keep writing happily. 
This question is about how Tracy Lambrich's mother got into writing. Um, well, she said she had a horrible childhood and was always depressed, which is not true at all. But <laughs> she, I don't know. I think that um, she, she always found that writing was her way to escape whatever angst she was feeling. Teenage angst, anything. Th that's why I wrote. Even as a kid, I was very thoughtful. And I just wanted to be alone. I mean, I really wanted to be alone so I could write and draw. And I think she was that way too. I mean, because we were an only ch I was an only child, we were together so much, there were times when PJ told me I was actually just really politely, when I was a little really politely, I would say, Mom, can I be alone for a little bit? Because <laughs> I just wanted to go to my room and be alone. <laughs> so she was very much like that. And I think that was, that was a part of it. You know, part of it's really innate, but um, she came from a huge family of big readers and was, you know, given you know, reading material from the time she was tiny, as was I. So reading was always a very important part of, of both of our family's lives. So I think we absorbed that too. And I just love being in a library again because it was like my favorite place ever in the world. And I still love walking in because you can still smell. And even though I don't think they still, they smell quite the same, I just have that memory, you know? So the olfactory memory of walking into a library first grade and it was the most magical thing in the world so so I love being here and thank you for coming to sport I would recommend going to the wine tasting that sounded really good <laughs> this audience member asks if Lambert still lives in the Twin Cities area I well actually I do um, I lived in LA for 10 years yeah, and I moved back here in 2008, and I've been back ever since, and I love being back. It was just, I'm, I'm so happy. You know, I kind of feel like I, you know, I had my fun out in L.A., and now it's like, come, come, and I live in a beautiful part near Stillwater, the St. Croix River Valley, and it's like a writer's retreat. And, you know, now when I go home and work in this beautiful peace and quiet and solitude, I look out the window with this little lake, and I think, how on earth did I work in L.A. with all the cacophony and noise? And I mean, I really did. I mean, wrote five books when I was living in L.A. And I'm just thinking of the street I lived on, and the joggers, and the horns, and the car alarms, and the people yammering on their cell phone at 4 a.m. when they're doing push-ups on the road. So I'm happy to be back, <laughs> needless to say. Our next question is if Tracy Lambrich succumbs to writer's block, and if so, how does she overcome it? Oh, yeah, writer's block. Writer's block, yes, it plagues everybody for sure, you know, and um, it used to be a mystery. It is not a mystery anymore. I mean, writer's block for me, and I mean, you get it, and you have trouble for 10 minutes or a day or especially two days, and it's like, red flag, something's wrong, period. And I think that's the real writer's block. It's not like you're not being creative or it's like, you know, you're not working hard enough or you're having a bad day. It's something's fundamentally wrong. And even if your conscious doesn't pick up on that, your subconscious does, I believe, and that you know there's something wrong with the story. And every time we've had writer's block and every time that um, PJ and I have together had writer's block, we finally learn to say, okay, what's wrong? And we'll sit down and we'll break it down and look, oh, okay, this is very fundamentally wrong or this structural component totally doesn't fit or this character is not working. And so that's it. So any of you right out there and you're having writer's block, just tell yourself something's wrong and then look and find it. And when you find it, writer's block goes away. It's a miracle. I wish I'd have known that like 20 years ago. <laughs> 
This question is about how the writing duo P.J. Tracy was able to work together on the same novel. You know, generally how we worked um, was we'd get together at her house and we'd either bat back and forth ideas, come up with ideas, come up with ideas for chapters, and you know, she'd say, you know what, I, I don't know, I, I don't want to write the cops tonight. I want to write Monkey Wrench. And I'm like, good, I don't want to write Monkey Wrench. Let me write the cops. And so we would um, just each, each after we do our kind of planning session during the day and our laughing session and then happy hour, then we go back home and <clears throat> write our chapters and then come together the next morning and, and pull, them, pull them together again and um, just kind of progress from there. And that's was a very effective way for us to be able to work um, when I was out of state, because even though I'd fly in every month or so to work, um, you know, that long distance, we had to have the ability to work on separate things, still be on the same page, but work on separate things and email back and forth. So that's kind of the, you know, how we worked. This audience member inquires about the writers Tracy and PJ enjoyed reading. You know, we read everything we could get our hands on, no matter what. But we, you know, we loved the local, like John Sanford, Nelson DeMille is one of our favorite, Dennis Lehane, Michael Connolly, um, even older things going back to Clive Cussler and, and Wilbur Smith. And, and I mean, just anything. There was nothing we wouldn't read, although we'd love to read any mystery. And there are probably hundreds of books and hundreds of authors I've read that I can't remember. I can barely remember the titles of my own books. But, um, and I read, I'm a big fan also of, I mean, just the more you know, and the more you read, the more you see, whether it's on TV or whatever, it, it's just another possible source of ideas. You never know what's going to inspire you. So I do a lot of nonfiction reading as well. And um, I, I, read, I read cookbooks. I woke, I'm, a, I'm a geek. I read, no, I read cookbooks front to cover. I mean, I'm, I'm a, of a food geek so I just loved so that's something I read and honestly I have had inspiration reading a book on molecular gastronomy that has nothing to do with the book but will give you an idea and an inspiration for a book so you just got to keep your mind open and just keep you know grabbing out of thin air and you're gonna find ideas everywhere another curious audience member wonders if Tracy Lambrich has had the opportunity to use her degree in Russian studies in any of her writing well, in the sixth idea, well, kind I mean, not practically speaking, I learned a lot, and I know a lot about Russian history and culture, and so I had a lot of fun um, finally telling my parents, it's like, yeah, that St. Olaf education finally really paid off. I got to have a Russian assassin in the sixth idea. But he was super fun to write because he was a very complex character. He was an assassin. But he was very Russian, and he has memories of being back in Moscow, and his colleague is also a Russian ex-KGB guy. So I did use, I mean, I drew a lot of what I knew from, from you know, my Russian studies to put that. Matt, his name was Max, and he was one of the favorite characters I ever wrote, besides Jack Gilbert in Live Aid, who was a crazy, funny, personal injury attorney, raging alcoholic. That ended up being a really deep character. So. <laughs> This question is about if any of the Monkey Wrench books were to be adapted into films, who would Tracy like to see play Grace McBride? You know, when people ask me that, they have always asked us, I just have no idea. I mean, 
first of all, I hardly know, I mean, like way back in the day, you would say Angelina Jolie, right? I mean, she just seemed like she'd be a great Grace McBride. Well, Angelina Jolie is like a grandmother now. I mean, maybe not really, but you know, I mean, and I don't know who any of the, you know, the new people are, so I really wouldn't know. And it's also, it's really hard because, you know, we know these characters so well, or I know these characters so well that I, I don't see anybody, I see Grace. You know, I see Magosi. I have in my mind what they're like. So nobody's, you know, gonna, I, I don't know. It's just like if it, the movies ever get made, we'll just, you know, pray there'll be an excellent casting director and I'm sure there will be. <laughs> Our last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering how PJ Tracy writes about technology. Do they have an advisor to help with the subject matter? I am a genius. I am not a genius at all. No, I can barely turn on my computer. Um, I, my father actually is uh, one of the original computer geeks. He started out with Sperry Univac in the 60s as a systems analyst. So, I mean, I remember him taking me on field trips there when I was a little kid, and there was a computer about half the size of this room. You know, the kind with the punch cards, and I mean, the really, really old kind, and it was that big, and it probably had like, I don't know, one kilobyte of memory at that time, if they even had kilobytes back then. But I rem I'll never forget him saying it. I was so impressed by this when I was a kid. This huge computer, he said, Tracy, someday computers are gonna be half that size. <laughs> And I reminded him of that the other day. You know, you have your little tiny microphone, you know, and it was like, yeah, well, times have changed, that's for sure. So he, he was a great help, and I have friends who are very, you know, some people who work for the government and are very into technology. But our main thing was always that even if it doesn't exist, you can make up anything, and chances are by the time this book is published, it's going to exist. You know, technology's... <laughs> moving that fast so we can literally make stuff up. So what I usually do is I will always write the text stuff because PJ hated that. And um, I'd usually, if I had a thing that I didn't think worked, I'd run it by my dad and his friends and they would either make suggestions and say, nope, totally plausible, gonna happen, is already happening, you don't know about it, so. <laughs> all right, well, let's do it then. I wanna thank everyone at the library. Thank you all for coming. That wraps up our Carver County Library Chan Hassan event with PJ Tracy. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Susan Elizabeth Phillips, who spoke at Stillwater Public Library. Over the past three decades, Susan Elizabeth Phillips has published nearly 30 books, including five titles honored as RWA Favorite Book of the Year. She is best known for the number one New York Times bestselling Chicago Stars series. The ninth and latest installment, First Star I See Tonight, was released in paperback in June. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just made too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book. 
the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library. <laughs>